0: Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 you'll find on page 807 in the Black Pew Bible. This morning we begin a a study of the gospel according to Matthew, which I believe will take us uh, through the end of next semester to get through the Sermon on the Mount. Looking forward to that. Now before we hear the passage. Let me give you fair warning. Uh, These are not just the opening words of the gospel according to Matthew. They're the opening words of the whole New Testament. And they're not what you might expect. They're actually pretty difficult. Some of you might say, well, why begin a book in a difficult way and expect me to keep listening to it? What some of us would much rather hear, especially Americans raised on uh, movies, is uh, we want to hear the voice of that movie trailer guy saying in a land far far away in a world gone mad in a time of Jewish suffering and Roman oppression comes one man a hero and his motley crew of followers but what you get is a list of 42 ancestors of Jesus and in a moment, we're going to read them. We might think genealogy is unimportant or boring or pointless. But actually, God thinks this genealogy is important. And that's why he wrote it. He inspired it. And if we're going to hear him speak, we need to listen to the way he chooses to speak to us. And one of the tricks of listening to anybody is to listen to what the person says the way that they want to say it rather than skipping through to the parts we want to listen to. If we learn to hear this the way that the ancient Jews would have first heard it, we'll find it's much more interesting and much more important than an email, for instance, in your inbox from Ancestry.com, okay? Okay. A couple of last things about the genealogy before we read it by way of introduction. This genealogy tracks the ancestors of Jesus in three groups of 14. From Abraham to David, from David then to the exile of Israel into Babylon, and then thirdly from the Babylonian captivity through to the return to Jerusalem all the way up to Mary giving birth to Jesus. What's here is not an exhaustive list of the ancestors of Jesus. In fact, there are generational skips in the list as you read it. Now, don't let those skips bother you. I'm not even going to point them out. But the Jews regularly wrote that way. Even Ezra, Ezra of the Old Testament, famous Ezra, when he wrote his own family line in the Bible, skipped his own father. So it's not an uncommon practice. Some genealogies are really concerned about, you know, accounting for every ancestor, providing exact dates of birth and death, naming all the marriages and the offspring. That's one way to do a genealogy, but there are other ways. This genealogy has a focus on the royal line of kings, and it does so in order to show that Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne of Israel. Matthew tends here to highlight the line of the kings, good ones and bad ones, believing ones and vile, wicked ones, along with highlighting the surprising uh, number of mothers uh, that we'll find here. So the, uh, there are not too subtle uh, inclusions here of the scandalous, uh, as we'll read. And so let me invite you then, with that introduction, to consider God's word from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, the beginning of the New Testament. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Obed the father of Jesse. And Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam the father of Abijah. And Abijah the father of Asaph. And Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat the father of Joram. And Joram the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah the father of Jotham. Jotham the father of... Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jehoniah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jehoniah was the father of Sheltiel, Sheltiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud. And Abiyad, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Akim, and Akim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations, from Abraham to David, were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of God. Let's look to him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we bow before you and thank you that you are a God who speaks. Speak to us now. Teach us your word. Show us your son In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen. So you've got here a gospel. The four gospels are the accounts of the life, obedience, sufferings, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What does gospel mean? It means good news. That's the meaning of the term, news that brings joy, but that's not always the impression Christians leave others that we've heard good news or that we believe good news and there's a reason for that we get mixed up as we live the christian life thinking that it's really about me and my faith and my belief and my response and how i'm doing and frankly we all have bad days days of discouragement days of despair And we give up on ourselves and it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of good news in our lives looking at us. But there's not a word about you in Matthew chapter 1 verses 1 to 17. Now it's a word to you, but it isn't about you. Because the gospel isn't good news about you, it's about Jesus and who he is. The good news is not that I am good, but that Jesus is good. Not what I do for him, but what he has done for me. Not that I can help myself, but that he can help me. I grew up in northern Ohio, as I've told many of you before, playing hockey on the pond in the winter. And we would scrape the ice, hoping it had frozen. Uh, And uh, the key question was always, is the ice thick enough to hold us? Or is it still slushy? Uh, Is it too thin? You could be Wayne Gretzky, and if the ice is a thin sheet, it doesn't matter how great a skater you are, you'll fall through. doesn't matter if Wayne Gretzky believes he can skate on slush. He can. But if the ice is four inches thick or a foot thick, rock hard, impenetrable, then it doesn't really matter how good a skater you are or how much you believe that you can skate. The ice will simply hold you. You can fall and get back up hundreds of times over. Because what matters ultimately is not your ability to skate, but the ice's ability to hold you. And the question in the Christian life is not so much how great is my faith or how well do I live out my faith. But, it, but is the object of my faith great? The quantity of my faith is not the issue. The object of my faith is. So the most important thing right at the beginning is that we learn about Jesus. And then we begin to tiptoe out onto him so to speak where we can grow in our confidence that he can carry our weight. So what is it about him that makes him this good news? Well, Matthew highlights three things and let me point you to them. He highlights his name, his titles, And his ancestry. And I want you to think about those three things. In the first place, his name, which describes his mission. His name is what? Well, look at verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus. That's his name. What difference does a name make? Some of you remember in Eagle Montoya, of the prince's bride fame, right? Whose father was killed by the six-fingered man. Inigo grew up with hate in his heart, revenge on his mind, and he trained as a swordsman just for the day that he could meet the six-fingered man and say, Hello, my name is Enigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Right? What would the revelation of his name mean to that man? It would mean hate, revenge, judgment, judgment and death is that what Jesus name means? no and you know that it doesn't but it is sometimes the impression people have and it is sometimes the impression Christians give that we really have no good news for anybody in fact it's really bad news to find out about Jesus but what does Jesus name really mean? it's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Joshua meaning the Lord saves or Yahweh saves right and his name describes his mission it's the name that's actually given in Matthew chapter 1 verse 21 we'll read next week where the uh, angel told Joseph that Mary was with child by the Holy Spirit and that she would bear a son and that he should call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins it's a great name now of course to believe the good news does involve recognizing the bad news about ourselves we need to be rescued we need to be delivered and it's always been this way since the fall of adam and eve our first parents in the garden when they rebelled against god and they joined in the rebellion against god instigated by the enemy of our souls satan But God, even before he kicked them out of the garden, and he does, even before he did, said that he, God, would send the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. God would send a deliverer, a conqueror, a warrior who would win a victory for them. And God would send that warrior to humanity and through humanity. And he did. God always does what he says he will do. Though it was thousands of years later. But he did. And Jesus came and you can lean on him. All the needs of your soul. But how does he do this? If this is his mission to save, how does he go about it? Well, that's what his titles tell us. They tell us he was appointed by God To the offices necessary to accomplish the mission. And you know that people who hold office have titles, like Chief Justice. It's a title. He holds an office. Or maybe in your home, Chief Bottle Washer, right? Titles, because you hold an office. Well, what are the titles of Jesus? Well, notice the next thing in the passage. Verse one, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, I mean, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham three things there first he's Christ or Messiah anointed one anointed in the Old Testament Messiah in the Old Testament anointed one referred to the practice in the Old Testament of anointing with oil or smearing with oil a person being set apart for an office who was anointed or smeared with oil in the Old Testament it was a symbol of the smearing or anointing with the Holy Spirit to equip people to fulfill the function of the office who was anointed in the Old Testament prophets, priests and kings which really handles the basic needs of God's people the foundational needs questions we need to ask are how can I know God well you need God to reveal himself to you you need a prophet how can I be right with God Well, you need a priest to represent you successfully to God, to bring you into his presence. How can I be safe in God? Well, you need God to subdue you to himself and to rule and defend you from all his and your enemies. You need a king. Prophets speak the word of God to us. Priests represent us before God. And kings rule over us for God. In the Old Testament taught the people to look forward to the day when the Messiah anointed one would come who would combine himself the offices of prophet priest and king so that if you want to know God look to Jesus and if you want to be right with God and have access to God and freedom before God look to Jesus as your priest and if you want to walk with God and be free from the slavery of the dominion of sin and free from all the assaults of the devil and death that could harm you, look to Jesus. And in Jesus' Matthew, we have not just then the coming of the Messiah, but he says we have the fulfillment of two covenants that's pointed to in these titles, these offices, Son of David, Son of Abraham. Not only is Jesus the Messiah, he's the son of, in the first place, let's take it this way, Abraham. Do you remember that God made covenant promises to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12? What were those promises? Genesis 12 verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. So that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That promise is formalized and reiterated and repeated in Genesis 15 and 17 and 22. But the essence of it never changes. God promises to give this man Abraham the blessing of being a blessing to all the nations of the world. So that in you, God says to him, through your offspring, through your seed, your descendant, all nations will be blessed. And your descendants will be as many as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. And your offspring will inherit the earth. These are the promises. And as Abraham's family unfolds, each in the family is given certain aspects of blessing So that you know, Jacob comes along. Jacob, who is later renamed Israel, he has 12 sons. And to the 12 tribes, certain particulars are promised. And one of the tribes will be the royal family. That tribe is Judah, named also here in the genealogy of Jesus. In that tribe, through that family, that one particular family, all the way down the line to the family of Jesse, Jesse, who will be the father of David, David the king. And that leads you to the second covenant promise, the promise with David. David is Jesse's son and and Jesus is great David's greater son. He's not just the son of Abraham, he's the son of David. The author is making that point here. And the covenant that was made with David, the particulars of it, are found in 2 Samuel chapter 7 just catch the snip of it in verses 12 to 13 God says I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed I think maybe I just read Genesis chapter 12 verses 2 and 3 did anybody pick up on that my notes are poor Second Samuel chapter seven, verses 12 to 13: "When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom for forever." Now you know that Solomon was the son of David and he did build a temple, but he didn't last in his kingdom and the building didn't last. David, that line, goes all the way to Jesus before it's fulfilled. Now Matthew is showing you then that Jesus is the son of Abraham, Jesus is the son of David, and he takes you to a third place in the Old Testament. He takes you not only to the span between Abraham and David, but he takes you from David to the captivity the enslavement in Babylon. He makes that very explicit in Matthew chapter 1. So what's he doing there? Well, he's taking you through the line of David when there's a collapse, when things are falling down, when the people are enslaved. It's described for you at length in Psalm 89. And I'm going to read a portion of it. Some of you may want to turn in your Bible to Psalm 89. You'll find that on... Page 495. Just to catch a snip of it, Psalm 89, verses 3 and 4 says this You have said, speaking to God, the psalmist speaking to God, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. What is that? That's a repetition of the covenant made in 2 Samuel, in poetic language, of course. But the psalmist is worried in the psalm. That's why he's reciting the promise back to God. You have said, O God, and he quotes God's promises to his face. You have said you would do this, but to the psalmist, it doesn't seem like he's doing it. The psalmist is worried that either God is forgotten his promises given up on his promises doesn't plan to fulfill his promises or something like that why because of the horror of the babylonian captivity where the people were ripped from their homelands their families were torn apart many were murdered and others were enslaved things aren't going well and david's is ravaged the temple is destroyed the royal family is almost obliterated And now look at verses 35 to 37 where God responds. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. You see what God does? He simply reiterates his promise. He assures him, I'm not lying. It will happen. And so then the psalmist says in verse 38 to 42 in part, But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You've renounced the covenant with your servant. You've defiled his crown in the dust. You've breached all his walls. You've laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. Do you see what the psalmist is saying? Again, where is David ruling over the nations, the psalmist is saying. His house is destroyed. The temple is destroyed. The temple that Solomon built, Solomon in the house of David. Jerusalem is destroyed. It's ransacked. It's plundered. The neighbors are rejoicing. And the people are in slavery. Not in Egypt, but in Babylon. What are you doing? Well, Matthew recounts that history through the line of succession of the ancestors of Jesus and the kings until he gets past that post-captivity when the people come back and he traces the line all the way then up through the coming of Christ. So he goes from Abraham to David. Things are on the rise. Things are looking good. God takes this lone pagan idolater, Abraham, which is what he was, and makes him the father of Israel with a kingly line leading to David who rules, David does from the Nile to the Tigris and the Euphrates basically runs the Middle East and then from David the second phase is all the way down all the way down to the Babylonian captivity where things really seem sunk and the family line is in ready to disappear it seems and then out of that A kind of partial recovery until the coming of the Messiah. No thoroughgoing recovery. Barely recovered. It never really rose up like it had been before until the new age. Until the Messiah himself has come. Great David's greater son. And he comes as the anointed king of Israel to bring a new start a new beginning, a new covenant, a new testament. Jesus can save is what the writer is saying. And he holds the proper office to do it. Messiah, prophet, priest, king, son of David, the kingly line, son of Abraham in whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But then you have to ask the question, he may have the titles his name may describe his mission does he actually have the qualifications to do it or is Matthew spinning some kind of fairy tale out of whole cloth and that's why you get this long genealogy the ancestry of Jesus And so let me walk you through some of its highlights the list he gives is pretty scandalous actually now about half the kings in the list, from verses 2 to 16, about half were men and kings of faith. They believed. But they were men like David. We'll mention his faults later. They were men like Hezekiah, Josiah. Hezekiah was a godly king, but even the best of them were less than perfect. And Hezekiah himself, in foolish pride, Right? He showed the treasures of Israel to her powerful enemies who later came and and took them away. About half the kings, however, in this list are truly wicked men. Ahaz is mentioned. Ahaz worshiped the pagan gods of Assyria. He practiced human sacrifice, he killed his own son. He defiled the Lord's altar, and he installed pagan altars instead. That's the king of Israel. And Ahaz wasn't alone. Rehoboam and Jeconiah were almost as bad until you get to Manasseh, who was worse. Manasseh, it says, did more evil than the nations, that's the Old Testament, than all the nations the Lord drove out before them. He promoted the worship of idols, and he murdered innocent people. So you got this list of saints and sinners, and then you got the unique aspect of this genealogy, which is the listing of all these women, and let's just say it, some scandalous women indeed. Now look, obviously there could be no genealogy without women, but you understand when ancient peoples wrote genealogies of their kings, They typically listed the kings behind them, not the moms who brought them into this world, loved, nurtured, advised. It's just the way they wrote genealogies, but the Bible goes out of its way to highlight the women in the line of Jesus. There are five women named here, and they stand out, and they make an important point, so consider the five. There's Tamar, verse 3. It says, verse 3, And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar. Now look, sometimes you can turn there yourself to the terrible story of Tamar in Genesis 38, where she was horribly abused by her in-laws. And Judah, her father-in-law, mistook her for a prostitute and took her for himself and fathered twins with her. She was more righteous than he, and he came to acknowledge that. But it's one of the scandals of ancient Israel that the chief heir of Judah, the man to whom the kingly line is promised, his chief heir was conceived so wickedly and out of wedlock. And then the second and third women are named in verse 5. In the first place, well, notice the language. And Sam and the father of Boaz by Rahab... And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. There's Rahab. She was, as you may remember, in fact, not falsely thought to be, but in fact, a prostitute. She plied her trade in Jericho. She protected the spies when the spies came to spy things out. And she was spared when the city was destroyed by the Israelites under Joshua. She... The prostitute is in the family of David, the family of the Messiah. That's a skeleton in the closet. Most royal families would strike from the record, not put on the front page. And and more than that, there's more about this that's questionable. She was a Canaanite, not an Israelite. She was one of the Israelites' enemies from a nation which practiced ritual prostitution in worship. And from a nation in which Israel was told, you must not intermarry with them. And yet there she is, the grandmother of King David. And there's Ruth. Boaz, the father of Obed, it says, by Ruth. Who's Ruth? Ruth is a Gentile, a Moabite, not an Israelite. She's a descendant of Lot, who in his drunken, incestuous relationship with his own daughters... Produced the tribe of Moab, which seduced Israel into idolatry. Now, look, I get it. Ruth's commitment to her mother-in-law, Naomi, is one of the sweetest, loveliest stories we have in the Old Testament. Where she says, my God will be your God, and my people will be your people. And it shows her in a positive light and somebody to be esteemed. But it's still shocking to find out that one of King David's grandmothers wasn't Jewish and that she was a Moabite. And that goes against the sense of racial purity and ethnic identity that so many Jews found to be so important. But right there on the front page, a Moabite, Gentile, pagan convert. And then fourthly, there's David's own wife named Well, she's not called uh, David's wife, actually, end of verse 6. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Her name is Bathsheba, we know from the story. She's called here the wife of Uriah, which highlights David's sin. She's not his wife. David, as you remember the story, was an adulterer, and he was a murderer. For she was found to be pregnant and so David had his good friend, the husband Uriah, basically murdered by the enemy to try to cover up his own crime. It's one of the great low points of the Old Testament. But there she is, Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. And finally there's Mary, verse 16, the fifth woman mentioned here, the mother of Jesus. Verse 16, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary of whom jesus was born who is called christ now so far matthew doesn't mention any scandal about her here we're not told yet that she's already pregnant with child before she marries and that joseph who she does marry is not the biological father though he is the legal father but there's a hint of it here already because it doesn't say joseph is the father of jesus no joseph He was married to Mary, the mother of Jesus. So there they are, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, Mary. Let's close by just asking a couple of questions and making some applications. In the first place, let me ask you what skeletons are in your closet. And what skeleton has your family... Sought to bury in the past in the grave of ancestors we don't talk about at Thanksgiving. When Jesus said to his people, go make disciples of all nations, he wasn't telling the church to do something brand new. He was telling the church to do what God himself had already been doing. Having pity on pagans and prostitutes opening his arms to the stained and the sinful and strangers to his covenants of promise and so you have Jesus come and he's the culmination of this passage he's the culmination of the Old Testament is what Matthew is saying everything looks forward to him he fulfills the promise to David he fulfills the promise to Abraham he fulfills the promise of Messiah And so what you have here is acknowledgement that the Old Testament is a Christian book. It's not merely Jewish, it's Christian literature. It was all written and it all happened to prepare for the coming of the Messiah who came by Jesus. When God called that pagan idolater Abraham and made promises to him, it was Jesus God had in mind. And when God called that adulterer and murderer David and kept his promises to him, it was Jesus God had in mind. And when God called that cast-off daughter-in-law Tamar and that Canaanite prostitute Rahab and that Moabite Gentile Ruth and that wife of a Hittite Bathsheba and that teenage girl virgin Mary who scandalized her husband and her community, It was Jesus God was thinking of. So why show the skeletons in the closet of Jesus? Because he is the redeemer for all kinds of people. Of women, of men, of Jews, of Gentiles, of saints and sinners. And he can redeem even you. No matter what scandal or skeleton is in your closet. Maybe that's why Matthew... I think takes such pleasure in highlighting this because Matthew, Levi, the Jew, I think was sensitive to this grace because he himself was a disreputable tax collector working on behalf of the hated Roman government against his own Jewish people and getting rich himself while imposing poverty upon his brethren. But if Jesus can save people like this, he can save a man like Matthew, he can save people like us, are you trusting him to save you? He's trustworthy. And finally, to close, Dan Doriani says, at some point, most of us have tasted the angst of waiting to hear if we have gained entry into some kind of desirable club, some exclusive club. Maybe it was... A 10-year-old treehouse club, right? A, A basketball team, student government, an elite college. Well, after people enter an exclusive club, they can turn one of two ways. They can think, what a great club. They let a marginal character in like me. I need to welcome other marginal characters into this club too so that they can enjoy all the benefits of belonging. And the other way to go, of course, is to say, you know, if I got in, the standards must be sinking. We need to raise the bar, tighten things up, make it more exclusive. And so says Dr. Doriani, we should take the first approach. Let those who know grace be gracious. If you've been welcomed by Jesus... Welcome others, too. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of a kind, open-armed, gracious Savior. Rescue us from all our sins and rescue all of us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.